I tried thinking when I was writing the sermon this week about uh, preaching, and I thought, well, I'll just not, I'll just not say anything about the reading from Proverbs about the good wife, uh, because it has us venture into territory. But I, I can't, I can't get around that. I can remember when I was a kid, and I, also since I've been a, a pastor, I've had people come in and talk to me and say things like, well, when I was a kid at home, my dad would sometimes, on certain occasions, sit at the dinner table and read from that section of Proverbs about the good wife, and it was usually because the good wife was annoyed at him for some reason. So he was, he was going to talk about it. But it, it, it allows me to say some things uh, that, I, that, that are interesting, I think, and important. Uh, just to repeat, we, we're reading from Proverbs, and Proverbs is the oldest book in the section of the Hebrew Bible. Christians take the, the books of the Hebrew Bible, and they order them in a different order than, they, than Jews do. So Jews have all these books, but they, don't, they, they have different names for them. And they order them differently. We call this section that has Ecclesiastes and the Psalms and some of uh, the Song of Solomon and all of that uh, in the wisdom literature, we call it. So this is the oldest piece of wisdom literature. And it is uh, talking about wisdom in a certain way. Normally, uh, if you do this, these are the consequences or statements like what we read today about the good wife and uh, what it means. So I thought I'd say something about the, about the reading itself. The, uh, this passage, this poem about the good wife is an acrostic, which means that each line of the poem begins with a different letter of the Hebrew alphabet, and then it repeats, okay? So just like Psalm 119, if you look in the, in the uh, prayer book and you go to Psalm 119, or for that matter in the Bible, whatever version of the psalm, and you look at that and you start to read it, it's the longest psalm in the Psalter. It's very long. And it's an acrostic. And that's why in the, in the uh, present prayer book, we put the Hebrew character uh, at the top of the section. And it means that section... All of the the, the, the song verses begin with that letter, Adeth, you know, or Daleth, or, you know, one of the Hebrew characters. So the same is true here. And I think that was probably uh, as an aid to memory for people. We often forget, you know, that the Bible uh, was written by people who could write and who could read. And most of the people in the communities out of which these things emerged could not read or could not write. And so they have to be uh, written in a way that would be uh, something that somebody can pick up. There's still cultures in the world. We, we find that so hard. Our memories have been uh, deeply affected in the West, at least among people who are educated and literate, because we don't need to memorize stuff. Whereas in a lot of countries in the Middle East, for example, there are people who would know the whole Quran by heart. They know it absolutely by heart. There, there are a number of people who, in our tradition, know the Psalms by heart. You know, they've read them and they've memorized them and so forth. 
but this is an aid to, to memory. So what, what we've been given over the last three weeks is, is another thing, and that is that wisdom, as it's described, is the word is feminine. And so we hear, we've heard about woman wisdom. And in Hebrew, it, uh, we read the good wife, which, but it also could be translated as strong woman, the strong woman. And so these qualities now are described about strong women in terms of what they do. Uh, it's important to say, I'm using some aids from, from commentaries that I read, uh, the capable wife is wholly defined from a male-identified point of view, that is, from the perspective of her fulfillment of roles that enable the lives of the men who depend on her. However, uh, and um, what man here, what man among us has not benefited from the over-functioning of our women, right? I mean, let's, let's, let's own up to it. There it is, right? It's part of the deal. Carol Fontaine is a Hebrew scholar, biblical scholar at the Andover Newton Theological Seminary in Newton, Massachusetts. It's one of the premier uh, seminaries in the Protestant tradition in this country in the Northeast. And she says in, a, in the commentary from the HarperCollins Bible Commentary, uh, nevertheless, the picture presented here acts as a corrective to the notion that women are dangerous beings who sap away men's lives and fortunes and may have been included precisely to counter such one-sided negative views seen earlier with a positive last word on the subject. And the reason I mention this is that I've preached a lot about uh, how, particularly in my view, in the Hebrew Bible, we see transformation and change occur in uh, communities, uh, and we see it happen among their manners, morals, and customs, that people think differently and act differently than they did before. So for me, the Hebrew Bible, part of it has to do with uh, seeing how the people of God's consciousness has been raised throughout the period in which that was written. So the understanding has deepened, and they begin to see that God's work is more, um, I don't want to say complex, but it is multifaceted, so that we understand that God is working in, in ways that we don't understand, and often outside what the conventional wisdom is for how things work. And this is present even in this reading. Uh, I'm concerned, um, both as a preacher and just as a, a person in this country, that there is a, uh, well, in my lifetime, there's been a sea change in the way in which men and women have interacted with one another, right? And probably the biggest thing in uh, our cultural life, and this is true certainly in the West and in all in other parts of the world, uh, the the growing, knowledge, the, the, the growing equality between men and women that seems to have appeared is uh, something that is in, it's never come to its full realization and yet and probably never will. But there are some things at work that seem to be working against that. There are people and groups in this country who are trying to write us back in terms of how we understand it. And in one of my, 
Well, uh, here's, here's one I'm just going to mention to you because you might hear about this. Um, even in very sophisticated evangelical circles these days, there is a term that is being used known as complementarianism. And complementarianism is the view that while the sexes are equal, men and women are equal before God, they have different God-given roles. And as it turns out, the God-given roles are uh, that women may not, one of the things is, there are various interpretations of this, so women may not exercise any positions of leadership in the church. They may not do this. And we're not saying anything about their inferiority. We're merely saying that the Bible tells us that that is so. And so in 1 Timothy and in Galatians and in some other places, there are very few texts uh, in the New Testament that support this view. But some people don't care and they're going to push this, right? So there are some people who have an extremely... uh, rigid and reactionary view of how complementarianism should operate, and there are others who are more relaxed and so forth. I I have wished and yearned that this would not be so, but it seems to me that the more complex you get things about faith and belief, the less people, A, are able to understand it, and B, to follow it. So it's necessary to say, well... Uh, This is very complicated in the way they explain it. There's sort of, I've watched a lot of YouTube videos about complementarianism. I'm fascinated by this. And it's come back. It's come, uh, and some people who are very important in that world uh, preach this and teach this. And so um, I'm just uh, telling you about it. I'm offering to you this view without prejudice. And here in Proverbs, we have something about qualities that nobody would throw any cold water on, right? And uh, it's possible to express those qualities, both men and women, without compromising our integrity, you know? And if human beings have a view that uh, as the result of a particular group receiving more uh, equitable treatment or being treated equally and acting equally is going to diminish the other group, that's not true. And the Bible doesn't teach that. The Bible doesn't teach that. The Bible tells us that God's saving embrace is for everyone and that all people in uh, in, in all the people of God are important and can uh, exercise whatever it is they need to exercise. Whatever level they rise to is an important kind of thing. So... It just made me think about that uh, and also, once again, about how the Bible teaches us about God working through the manners, morals, and customs of people. In the culture, you begin to see a transformation of culture. And there's a lot of people who are just trying to write us backwards, both in the West and in other places. They just don't think that that's the right thing to do. And uh, they're going to use a main force effort to make it not so. So anyway... The other thing I want to preach about is from James. And we've been reading through James. And I want to speak today once again about practical wisdom. James, we don't know who wrote James. 
it could have been James, but it may not have been James. It's a kind of general a letter or exhortation. It could have been a sermon. <clears throat> and it's not for just one community. It's for every the whole community of, I would say, Hellenized Jews. That is to say, the Jews that lived in the diaspora who spoke Greek and who were influenced by Hellenistic culture as well as the Judaism that they believe in. You know, there are a lot of people like Paul was a Hellenized Jew in one, in one sense, even though he was, fair, he was deeply traditional in his belief and practice originally. So James is writing today about the things that are uh, blocks to spiritual growth, and he's interested in bringing into closer proximity the letter and the spirit. How do we understand uh, how we do that? So I was thinking, how might we explain uh, what wisdom is or practical wisdom? Um, and I, one of the definitions that I haven't mentioned in a while is that wisdom is the accumulated knowledge uh, with regard to how to deal with adversity. That we understand it as a place where we, we have learned things about, about how do we respond to the adversity in our lives. And the reason it's wisdom is that we've learned this as an internal process, but we've also learned how to commend it to other people. The practical wisdom. You know, what have you learned? Last week I mentioned Edwin Friedman, who talked in a lecture that I heard him give before he died uh, about, I've said this more than once, he was a rabbi. He was a congregational rabbi, but he was also a licensed marriage and family therapist for 35 years. And he said, you know, I've, I've done this work, and I see people and talk with them, and they tell me stories that just make my hair stand on end if you heard what people have been through. And he said, you know what? I don't care about that anymore. I simply don't care hearing all that stuff. What I do care about, and the question I want to ask is, how come you're still here? What have you learned? How have you survived through this? What tools have you developed to be able to do this? Well or badly, right? or unevenly, for sure, when we're wounded and, and stuff, but we're still here. And so what is it that did that? How have you coped with situations like this in the past? And that, in one sense, is practical wisdom. Now, there's another type that uh, James contrasts this with. You know, he talks about envy and selfish ambition, and I think self-centered fear is part of that. Um, and he said it's important to have pure intentions, to be peaceable, to be gentle, to be willing to yield, to be merciful, and to bear the fruits of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, kindness, uh, patience, self-control. That's one list. There are more than one list in, in the New Testament. So those qualities that become easier for you to do as you live your life and to express that kind of wisdom. 
it's very difficult because we live in a culture now that's, that says, you know, ambition and envy and uh, so on are things that are really okay because if it, if it drives you to be able to get ahead or to become successful or well-heeled, then you should do these things, right? Somebody's getting ahead of me. I, how do I do that? And everybody, lots of people in the Silicon Valley are like the monkey with uh, uh, his hand in the jar and he's got hold of the nut. So he wants to get his hand out of the jar and he can't let his, get his hand out unless he lets go of the nut. Right? So every one of us has to ask, who's going to let go of the nut first? Right? And if I let go of the nut, what's going to happen to me? I won't be successful. I won't do all these kinds of things. And so uh, competitiveness and uh, all of those kinds of things. I've had people say to me over the years that I've been here, they've said things like, you know, what's out there really isn't very good. I don't like it. It's, it's just absolutely, uh, there's many things that I feel that I do that I'm not proud of. There's stuff that goes on. But I'm figuring I'm just going to do this until I get mine and then I'm leaving. I'm getting out. And let them do what they do. Right? So that's one approach. That's one approach. <clears throat> but in some way, the use of our practical wisdom has to be applied in a way that makes, that, that uh, brightens the corner where we are, right? How, how do we do that, you know? Because really, if the truth be told, none of us tomorrow morning at 8 a.m. are going to let go of the nut. So how do we, when I was about nine years old, I was at my grandparents' house, and I was doing the dishes, and I stuck my hand, they had one of those old stainless steel percolators, you know, one of those kind of ones, that uh, coffee thing, and I put my hand inside, the, the top was only about like this, and I put my hand in it to wash it out and, to, and so on, and I went to take my hand, I could not get my hand out. And my grandfather, I looked, I said, Gramps, I can't get my hand out of the key. He said, well, maybe you'll have to be that way for the rest of your life. <laughs> so, so I got, obviously there's no pot attached. So I, I, was, I, I managed to get it out. But I think that's sometimes what we, we need to do. Now, how do we do that? Personal ambition, self-aggrandizement, selfishness. You don't get rid of all these things uh, in one swell foop. But you need to say, these are, this is the area, the material that I'm working with internally, and so on. And uh, knowing that maybe helps you become a little, a little uh, less anxious. So this is, this is an epistle about the health of your spiritual condition, your internal, emotional, spiritual, and mental states, and your physical well-being, which influences those things. And if you get centered in that stuff, you'll begin, you're able to handle the uh, challenges and the opportunities that are in front of you. So maybe you could take the reading from James today and put it in one sentence that was in the epistle. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Amen.